Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. Anyway, so... That was what my weekend was like. Uh, so tonight, or this evening, uh, uh, we are talking about standing up to bullying and aggression in life. And... Uh, I'm going to talk uh, about it from a couple different perspectives, focusing on one specific perspective, uh, which will become clear. It's very common in my work, which is basically, teaching is uh, only a very small part of what I do. The vast bulk of my week is spent um, one-on-one spiritual counseling. And in much of the work, I do, it involves helping people who are living their adult life in some ways still trapped in the beliefs and behaviors that were applicable to earlier phases of development, childhood, uh, young adult life. To one degree or another, um, we all develop to survive family systems and socialization with peer groups, which can be very painful, and institutions which can be challenging, such as educational institutions. Uh, We all develop survival uh, strategies, essentially coping mechanisms, and and ways to uh, get through. And very often these approaches make complete sense in one part of our lives, but fail to adapt very well in adult life. A classic example being avoidance coping, of which tonight's talk is somewhat related. Avoidance coping is the child's uh, understanding that when a parent or an adult figure is angry with us, it's terrifying, and the best thing to do is avoid having a conflictual conversation. So the child will navigate around seeing certain people or will dodge important topics of conversation as an attempt to stay safe. In adult life, if we practice avoidance coping, where we avoid all conflictual conversations and difficult interactions, our lives become greatly diminished and we fail to get our needs met. So tonight is about the times in our life where we shrink in the face of persistent or aggressive behavior, uh, where we fail to stand up for ourselves. Um, Now, there's two general causes of this. The first is what's known as learned helplessness, a behavior that's both in mammals and across 
the board, primates, homo sapiens. It's essentially uh, when in an early environment a certain behavior is shown to be futile, we eventually give up and we don't try to test or challenge those constraints in our adult life. There's a kind of fatalism. A classic example, and uh, it's an unfortunate one because it inv involves animals, but it is said that uh, they train baby elephants to be compliant as they put an ankle bracelet on the baby elephant and then they that's attached to a chain which is then attached to a small pole which is uh, pounded into the ground so the baby elephant can't get too far away from the area and it just essentially has its movements constrained. In, by the time the elephant grows to adult size it could easily pull the pole out of the ground but in the interim years it gives up trying concludes emotionally, not so much logically, it just emotionally accepts the pole cannot ever be taken out of the ground. Now, a classic example of this in humans, they've done this clinical study over and over again, split people into two groups, and they put them into two rooms, and in each room there's a button, and they play very, very loud, unpleasant noises. And when they do, the, the people in each room try to figure out how to turn off the noises by hitting the button in different ways. Now, in room A, if they stumble upon the right, you know, number of uh, pushing the button or the right, you know, rhythm, it stops the noises. In room B, there's no way to stop the noise. The button is just a complete ruse. It actually has no capability of switching off the sound. Now take those two groups into a second set of rooms where there's a lever. Now in these two new sets of rooms, the lever, if they simply pushed the lever, it would stop the sound. But the people who were in the second group where the button didn't work will not even try. That's learned helplessness. It's the conclusion that I will not get my needs met in this kind of environment. I might as well stop trying. So learned helplessness is not innate. It's a learned behavior. And it's learned slowly, generally, in humans over... Um, it's not like a single event. It generally uh, happens where children grow up and strict authoritarian families. If they're not exposed to groups where authority is regularly challenged, then they will spend much of their life simply obeying and believing everything that they're presented by uh, figures of authority. So clearly, um, the way around learned helplessness is simply exposure to other groups of people who challenge constraints, people who show that there are other ways that we can confront injustice, fight back, or challenge constraints. Core reason why um, it's so difficult at times for us to challenge aggressive individuals who are um, 
essentially uh, triggering a, f a kind of immobility, a sudden uh, tongue-tiedness, um, what we call freeze reaction, is because at some point earlier in our life, there's been some form of traumatic interaction with aggressive figure. And in that original interaction, uh, certain experiences happened that from that point on create a freeze reaction, which is those, I'm not sure if uh, every one of you has had it, but it's a situation in life where suddenly we can't speak we can't stand up for ourselves, even if we've made a determined statement, this time I'm not going to back down, this time I'm not going to be pushed around, this time I'm not going to be uh, gaslit, this time I'm not going to be uh, manipulated. Something happens where in the face of uh, uh, a bullying figure, an aggressive figure, a demanding figure, we all of that, those intentions get interrupted. So what happens in the original interactions is called dissociation. There's, when the child feels deeply bullied by an adult figure, the child, to survive, begins to detach from all of the sensations that are present all of the stimuli because it's such a threatening experience for a child to be shamed or screamed at or rejected or humiliated in front of a large group of peers or by a teacher that the child essentially checks out and they go into a very shrunken, vulnerable body where they cannot literally move. They're essentially immobilized. The neural events that happen is essentially most of our lives we're moving in between two states which are uh, the parasympathetic which is approach where you feel relaxed and you have largely positive emotions and you feel that you can connect with people and then the sympathetic nervous system which is withdrawal and that's the retreat mode. But what happens if there's so much um, adrenaline and cortisol uh, and norepinephrine released that it overwhelms even the withdrawal system? Well, then you go into a classic freeze state where in the animal kingdom, essentially, we play dead. We literally freeze. What happens is instead of hyperventilation, people hold their breath. They literally stop breathing. Literally, uh, both systems fire at once, the parasympathetic and the sympathetic, and the parasympathetic literally shuts down a lot of body systems. People literally shit or piss themselves when they're in freeze states, not all the time, but sometimes. Uh, there's an uh, overwhelm of the parts of the brain that allow us to think and narrate our lives, the left hemispheres, um, uh, dorsolateral and the hippocampus are all switched off. So the only part of the brain that's taking in the experience during a traumatic interaction is the right amygdala, 
which is a very, very basic memory system that doesn't recall stories. It just recalls scattered images, and it recalls states of the body, and it recalls um, actions. It just lumps the experience into this raw data. So what generally happens after these experiences is that they're not processed uh, into memories that, have, that are dated as happened in, in the past because the part of the brain that does that is switched off. It's stored in a part of the brain where important fear-based lessons are kept and that part of the brain doesn't have a past or present or future. It just has a, this thing is terrifying and if I encounter it, I'm going to either flee or I'm going to fight or I'm going to freeze. It basically has triggers, behaviors, states of being all lumped in together. And when it's triggered, we essentially go into an automatic state. Freeze can be triggered by any situation that reminds us of the original event where we felt abused. So, sometimes it doesn't make sense to us why something terrifies us, speaking in public or uh, going out on a date or the possibility of ending a relationship or having to say no to authoritarian figures. In each of these situations, we are triggered because at some point in the very distant past, no longer stored in memory, because memory wasn't even working when the original event happened, there was some deeply unpleasant event where we felt our integrity, our autonomy, our survival was challenged. It, again, can be triggered by anyone who's got any form of authority over us. It could be triggered by someone we're in a relationship with. It can be triggered by critical or rejecting scenarios. Very often, people can be triggered simply by certain kinds of looks in other people's eyes. Now, why is that? Human beings are social beings. Our primary drive is to connect. And the way we connect when we're infant is through reciprocal gaze, i.e. making eye contact. That's the first way we, sir, we make a contact with our caregivers. And the first part of the brain that really functions, the first circuit that really functions with advanced integrity is this, the circuit that processes people's facial expressions using the fusiform gyrus and the occipital lobe and the thalamus and a very small part of the frontal lobe. So that's the first thing that's working. And from that point on, for the rest of our lives, we judge how strong and secure our relationships with primarily through eye contact. And so the minutia of a gaze, the difference of a gaze that somebody gives us, can reproduce that 
terrifying moment in childhood where a parent or an authority figure gives us a harsh look and the child can easily associate that harsh look if it is associated with then other uh, disconnecting behaviors. The child can associate a certain look with danger and threat. So very often, simply a very inhuman, unemotional, cold look can trigger a freeze response. So... How do we address freeze reactions where we suddenly lose all the advanced cortical abilities to say, hey, no, this is not acceptable. I've, I've stated my boundaries here. Or you, if you talk to me this way, I'm not going to take anything you say into consideration. How do we maintain enough? How do we stay present and stay in... Uh, we don't, how does it we don't regress back into the original trauma state? When people are triggered, we also go into a very childlike body where we feel smaller and people seem bigger and we literally feel like somebody being angry with us is a real threat. So the key is to... Uh, not fall, not to not go into obviously this uh, triggered state, and there are a number of techniques that work that can prevent us from being essentially immobilized by aggressive individuals. Um, the key, the first two keys, are to keep as much of the present moment available. All dissociative freeze responses have in common with the fact that the individual is triggered stops being aware of present time sensations. What this means is we lose connection with the safe sounds and sensations of the world around us. That's called exteroception. And we lose awareness of the size and strength of the body, which is called interoception. So to stand up against aggression, first we need to be able to uh, develop some mindful awareness techniques that will keep us anchored in the present. The more anchored you are in the present, the less likely you or I will be pulled into a freeze state, which is again where we regress back to an earlier stage of development when we were vulnerable. So we do this by one, in a situation where there's any chance of conflict or uh, um, bullying, to find a sensation in the room that is safe. Something that lets us know that we are safe. For this, I generally recommend looking for signs of a door <laughs> to escape, listening to a sound of an air conditioner, uh, feeling uh, the ground beneath our feet, feeling uh, a chair we're sitting on, anything that keeps us from disconnecting 
Another thing about this is that it's essential not to be pulled into, um, exclusively into eye contact in a bullying situation. Most of the time in life, eye contact is a sign of positive reciprocal social bonding and it's healthy. But when we're being triggered by eye contact, generally I recommend looking slightly above the person's eyes and keeping in awareness the space around the person we're talking to so that we don't get sucked into like a vortex their expression. We keep awareness larger than the person that we're talking with. The larger the awareness, the more that we do not get caught up in that sort of, the sort of pull of the aggressor, the more we are uh, not pulled back into the regressive state. The second is uh, interoception, uh, which is feeling the size and strength of your body. Uh, simple ways to do that, literally squinch the toes and literally take turns squinching muscles, you know, digging your fingers into your, uh, the, the meat beneath the thumbs or in the palms. Something that uh, essentially reminds your parietal lobe of how big you are, that you're no longer this size, that you are... Uh, an adult, and, and even if you feel vulnerable uh, that they, the person you're talking with is bigger or more aggressive, still having a sense of your body keeps you from identifying once again with that earlier stage of development. We need to keep ourselves present, which is through body sensations and through external sensations. The third key is to have someone that we make ourselves accountable to. Very often people will let themselves be pushed around uh, unless sometimes they have someone that they really uh, care about, that they don't want to disappoint, and they've told that person that, you know, that what their plan is, how they're going to state a boundary, how they're not going to be uh, just, you know, how they're not going to stay silent. The, the accountability to someone else activates a part of the ventral medial lobe that also helps prevent falling into the triggered state and keeps us a little bit more present uh, mostly the ventral medial is not a good idea, but in this case it is. But finally, and what, this is what we're going to practice in tonight's uh, meditation as well, I've found that one of the key reasons that uh, it's difficult to confront bullying aggressive individuals is when we have for whatever reason, been both disempowered of our anger and also don't feel that we are worth protecting in some way. That we don't understand that there's a part of ourselves that needs to be 
uh, taken care of. One of the results of early uh, traumatic experiences is that in, in the original experience, we keep all the wounds and emotional pain of being mistreated and we compartmentalize it because we don't want to feel those feelings and we don't want to acknowledge the fact that we've been abused or at some point uh, emotionally mistreated by others. It's, it's very, it can feel, we can feel ashamed of it, we can feel humiliated, we can feel uh, embarrassed, and so we keep our, our own wounds concealed in what some therapists call shadow self, a compartmentalized inner child that holds all the wounds of all the times in life we've been bullied. And so that shadow self, that inner child, is so compartmentalized that we fail to, in our adult lives, realize that there's still a very wounded, frightened, uh, often rejected part of ourselves that's there, that's in our psyches, that will trigger freeze in the right scenario. And so it's very important to be able to, rather than reject this part of ourselves, to reconnect with it and to take care of that child instead of pretend that it's not there. Uh, I know this might sound a little confusing, but bear with me. Uh, in a lot of the work I do with people who've been through traumatic wounds, we try to connect with either an image or a feeling in the body that represents all those times in life where we wanted to be accepted by others, to be treated well, to be acknowledged, and instead we got some form of, of uh, shaming by social peers, by other kids in the schoolyard, by a parent when we wanted to be consoled, instead was stressed out, or by a sibling that ridiculed our, um, our pain at some point. So, interestingly enough, a lot of people who have been emotionally wounded, I noted in my work, would, as a healing process, would adopt animals as a way to start taking care of something. They were not yet capable of taking care of themselves, but they would take care of a dog or a cat. One person had a snake. I thought that was awesome. Uh, and that is a transitional practice that's wonderful because not only uh, are there so many animals that do need uh, to, be to be adopted, but uh, very often people who cannot allow themselves to feel their own emotional wounds would start to project those wounds onto the animals they would adopt and they would protect those animals fiercely. And I noticed when they would tell me about if somebody else came close to their dog or let their dogs come too close to their dog, they would become, you know, watch your dog. So these are people that were often utterly incapable of defending themselves in uh, manipulative situations, but still with com in possibly very conflictual interactions would say, hey, step back. 
You're fucking with something that I care about. So I realized that I could leverage this because if, people, if the people I work with realized that there was a vulnerable, frightened child in them that needed their protection, just as they would rise to the occasion for a dog or a cat, they would rise to an occasion for that inner child that is still there, still frightened, still reeling from the emotional pains of early life in the part of the right hemisphere that doesn't, where there's no sense of time, where wounds remain until we finally process and feel and take care of ourselves. And so the meditation I'll be leading tonight, in addition to the first part of getting us to use grounding anchors to keep us in the present. The second part will be about connecting with a vulnerable part of ourselves that we will um, not only empathize with, but we will also make a sacred pact to protect. So I hope that made sense. So find a really comfortable seated position. Just uh, before we close our eyes in this meditation, just take a look at the room around you and note the signs of safety if you feel that the people around you are safe. Note that. If you note the size of the room, the, the height of the ceilings, the quality of the light, uh, anything that gives you a sense of uh, mobility, safety, that doesn't make you feel trapped or constrained, all of those are great anchors. So closing the eyes, and first we'll take a few soothing breaths just to settle into the body, to stay safe and feel secure. It's important to make the body as safe a place as you can, to make the body as secure when we are triggered in difficult situations, very often the body becomes tense and tight and uncomfortable and it doesn't feel like a refuge. It feels like a vulnerable being that is not at all a secure place to be in. So, just take a nice, long, smooth in-breath through the nose like you're smelling a nicely scented candle and 
As you breathe in, lift your shoulders up if you like, like you're trying to uh, touch your ears with them. And then as you breathe out through the mouth, drop your shoulders and pull your shoulders gently a little bit back to open up the chest. Adjusting the vagal vagus nerve, which runs down the front of the body, is a good way to tell the amygdala that you're safe. So a second long, full in-breath through the nose and pull in the abdominal muscles and then breathe out slowly through the mouth and soften the belly and try to maintain through the rest of this meditation a really soft belly. When we are triggered or in a in any fight, flight, or freeze state, the belly becomes really rigid and tight, locked. When we're in a relaxed, broadened and built state, the belly is soft. So having a soft, pliant belly is such a wonderful way to stay present when other individuals are overly emotional without being triggered ourselves. And for the third in-breath, squinch the muscles in the face, tight, locked, forehead, eyebrows, nose, clenching the jaw, and then as we breathe out, release any tightness in the mus muscles around the eyes, those micro-muscles, releasing the jaw, So at this point, let's also develop interoception or mindfulness of the body in a way that keeps us connected. So for this meditation, as you breathe in, follow the sensations from, say, the belly all the way up, breathing into the chest, through the throat, up to the face. And when you reach the eyes and you breathe out, relaxing all the muscles down the front and back of the head, the throat, the chest, the belly, and then keep going all the way down your legs, to the soles of your feet, even connecting with the ground. Breathing in, have the energy move all the way up the body. This time it could start from the soles of the feet, all the way up the legs, the stomach, chest, throat, face. And then as you feel the body breathing out, scan down the and release muscles in the face, the throat, the shoulders, the chest, this time the 
arms all the way down to the palms of the hands. And just keep, as you breathe in, bring awareness to energy moving up the body to feel the full size of your body. And as you breathe out, relax, soften all the muscles, especially in the front of the body, the chest, muscles in the throat, the abdominal muscles, the buttocks. So for this meditation, which we'll do in silence, the first part, just keep the sound of the air conditioner or the sounds from the streets as awareness of the world around you. And as sensations from the body, just feel the energy moving up and down the body as you breathe in and out. Filling the mind with present time sensations, keeping us anchored and grounded to this moment. Eventually what will happen is your mind will be lured away from these sensations by a thought. Don't get frustrated. It's totally to be expected. When you realize that you've been lost in thought, just let go, relax, feel good that you're connecting with life and just return to the sensations all around you. You don't have to find them. They're happening all the time. The sounds, the body breathing. Nothing you need to do, just return to what's all around you.
so at this point, just allow the sensation of the breath and the sounds of the air conditioner or the cars, traffic on the street below. Just allow it to recede. Don't push it out of awareness, but don't keep it in the foreground. And I'd like you to bring to mind a time either recent or not so recent where you felt mistreated by someone. It could be by someone in a power position above you or just by somebody who was acting from a place of undue hostility and aggression. If you can't think of any time, just ask yourself, how would it feel? And see if you can connect with not only a time, but a feeling in the body, a feeling of being suddenly caught off guard, confronted, even uh, just poorly treated. Where do you feel it? For me, I often feel it a combination of a tightness in my lower belly and a kind of slight strangling feeling in my throat, almost like a clinging, clutching tightness in the front, almost like somebody's choking the words. And connecting with this feeling, holding it, and then see if there's any image of yourself that comes to mind when you were at a time in your life where you felt really vulnerable, unprotected? It could be a specific incident or a period of life. For me, when I was 12 in summer camp and was singled out by a group of... uh, quite bullying kids. I felt I had no place to turn. So I have an image in my mind of myself at that age. It might not be accurate, but I just go with whatever arises. So when was there a time in your life where you needed support, care, and it wasn't available. Just go with whatever image comes to mind. Again, don't try not to ever overthink it. Just have a feeling in the body and if if possible, an image in the mind.
see if you can empathize with this vulnerable part of your life, the fear, the sadness, the loneliness, the overwhelm, whatever was present, it's still a part of our lives, those wounds. Just care about the wounded, vulnerable parts of ourselves that we deny so much of, turn our backs on, but is still forever yearning for our attention and our care. And just see if you can, either through just a feeling or a thought, some way to say, I care about you. I'll take care of you. I care about you. I'll take care of you. I know you need love and someone to be there. I won't abandon you. I'll take care of you. Remembering that there's a part of your psyche, your core life experience that you carry with you that's been mistreated, by others making this connection to protect this part of yourself just as you wouldn't let a child or an animal be abused. Don't let this vulnerable part be mistreated. And finally, just we'll end with a brief, repeated phrase, just repeating to this feeling, this part of ourselves, I love you, keep going. 
I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. So in a moment I'm going to ring the bowl and take your time. Try not to simply push any vulnerability that you've become aware of. Don't push it away. Just bring this understanding of how we deserve to be taken care of with us into the rest of the evening. One of the ways that we can be uh, put into a defensive, shrunken, vulnerable place is when we're caught off guard. uh, emotional bullying or aggression always is done at the behest of the timing is always part of it in that uh, the aggressor almost an all invariably chooses when and they generally use uh, it to deflect onto us anger that they feel from other interactions or stresses in their life one of the best ways to get one's needs met is to catch the other person when they're not expecting it and not to repeat the same aggression but to rally that kind of care that we would feel for any child or anyone that's abused and say hey you know when you spoke that way the other day it was in a way that is not going to work. I'm not going to... I, I will not purpose... I will purposely not take anything that's said to me in that tone of voice into account. I have actually said this to uh, people when I uh, work um, that, you know, if you want to... If you have something that is frustrating you about my behavior... It has to be said in a way that dignifies and respects me, that doesn't demean me, that doesn't essentially try to use shaming or um, any kind of calling into question my adultness. And catching the person off guard. Because part of a place of strength is not waiting to get permission all the time. It's sometimes being willing to, and when the person says, uh, I, don't, I don't want to talk about this right now, that will be their defense. Our job is to uh, say, well, you know, you caught me off guard the other day. I listened, so now I'm going to tell you that that was, uh, I thought about it, and while I understand what you were trying to get across, the way you got it, you put it across, was not going to work. 
And so we have to agree upon this right now. Yeah. 